But I don't know, um, when I was growing up as a lad, there, I have to say that the seasons were very distinct. Not like they are today. So you'd start with spring as the weather would get warmer and you'd see new shoots appearing, you know. I can remember once entering a competition and uh, I, had a, I had to grow a daffodil. And there was a daffodil competition at school. And I took this bulb and I put it in a pot and I even put it inside a dark but warm airing cupboard because my mother told me it would force it to grow. Well, I visited that uh, bulb every day, but nothing seemed to appear above the earth. However, the night before um, the competition, I had to take this thing in. I was pretty distraught, but my mum said, don't worry about it. I'm sure it will all be all right. And when I went in the morning, you won't believe this, there was a full daffodil standing in that pot. And I took it to school so proud. And I put it in the competition and won third prize, only to find out in my later years that my mum had dug a flower up in the garden and stuck it in the flower pot. (laughs) But despite my experience of trying to grow things, the reality is when spring came, the weather would get warmer, things would happen, blossom would come on trees, flowers would begin to break through. I can remember going and seeing bluebell wood with a carpet of bluebells in the spring. It was absolutely amazing. And then spring would turn into summer, the days would get longer, the weather would get warmer, and it was good. I used to love it because it stayed light till late. And uh, it, it was just good. And then autumn would come and the days would just start to draw in. But I loved autumn because of the light because of the change of colour on the trees. But there was a very distinct move from season to season. And then in the winter, whilst we didn't always have snow, I have to say I longed to wake up on a Christmas morning with a fresh white carpet of snow across the ground with no footprints in it so that I could be the first out of the door and leave my mark across the garden. Now, this morning, I'm not going to talk to you about global warming or the Christian response to that. But I do believe that God works in seasons. I do believe that in our lives, we go through different seasons. And it's important that we learn to respond to God in those seasons as those seasons change, even though they don't fit quite nice tight patterns like the seasons used to, just like our seasons now, seem to drift from one to another. There's very little change for a long time and then all of a sudden something happens, but everything just seems to be a little confused. And sometimes we too can get confused. So what I want us to do today is we're going to be looking at Acts 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. Now, I know that some of you have to leave about quarter to 12, so this is going to be, if I finish by quarter to 12, amazing. If not, those of you who have to leave, away you go. 
All right, feel free. I won't be embarrassed. All right. So, but we're going to be looking at Acts 10 and 11 because I think Dr. Luke is trying to show us something, that there is a change of season, a change of emphasis that is going to happen in the growth of the early church, which is going to be significant. And in order for that to take place, he is going to start to challenge some things in people that they weren't even aware of that were there. It wasn't that they set out to be in a particular frame of mind about things, but they were, and they were fixed in that frame of mind. And so when God began to do something fresh and something new... There was a sense of being perplexed, so we're told. So I'm going to read to you from Acts 10. I'm probably going to read to you, uh, I'll read to you 16 verses. Verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, He gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with the one known as Simon Atana, or with one Simon Atana, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Now, that's a bit of a strange word to use. In fact, we would, most of us, if we talked about a trance, we would have problems if a Christian was saying, oh, I fell into a trance. But it says so in the scripture, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. The rest of the story goes on to say that as he comes to the end here, the Holy Spirit speaks to him basically, tells him that there are three guys at the front door, and the three guys turn up just at that time and call out for Peter. And he goes down and he finds these three Gentiles before him. And it says that he invites them into his house. 
He keeps them there overnight and then goes with them the next day to Cornelius' house. And the result is that the Holy Spirit is outpoured. And something amazing happens. They all spoke with other tongues. Just like it had happened on the day of Pentecost when the Jews gathered in Jerusalem and the disciples were there and everyone heard God speaking in their own language. When I studied at university, <clears throat> which was a, quite a while ago now, in the, in the 90s actually, crumbs, it was that a lot, it was a long time ago, 91 to 95. We used to have to do essays, and in my learning to do essays in my first term, I was told that the way a, uh, uh, an essay question is written is really important for you to get hold of. Because so many people just look at the subject matter and then write as, around the subject, but don't actually answer the question. I was a bit more crafty than that. I always made the question be the question I wanted to answer rather than the one that was asked. But as long as I did that in the introduction, very often I'd still get a good mark for it. But the interesting thing was they said that you had to take account of the, of the wording. So what some essays were written like this, compare and contrast. And I think that's what Luke is doing here. When he is taking and doing this account of Peter's interaction and his journey all the way down to Caesarea and meeting Cornelius and Cornelius' household, he is comparing and contrasting both Peter and Cornelius. People who came from totally different ends of the spectrum. In fact, I'll go further than that. From something that Peter says when he goes to Cornelius' house, he says very clearly, it is unlawful. You know that it is unlawful for a Jew to visit someone from another nation. So effectively, what was happening was Peter was going down to Caesarea and he was breaking the rules. And not only was he breaking the rules, but he was taking other people other Jews with him who also would have broken the same rules. He'd already broken the rules. He invited them into his house. And he looked after them. He was staying with Simon, a tanner, someone who worked with animal skin, which made that man unclean, ceremonially unclean. And so Peter seems to me to be being prepared for something. And yet at the same time, Peter's heart is exposed. Peter might be slightly breaking the rules staying with Simon the Tanner. He might be breaking the rules inviting the guys in. He might be breaking the rules going to Caesarea and going into the Italian officer's house but the reality is his heart was still stuck in what he knew his heart was stuck in what he knew you see he was the apostle who carried a message to the Jews, Paul or Saul had been chosen and been told he was going to carry the message to the Gentiles. And yet here, 
Peter is crossing the threshold. He is crossing a boundary that he probably had not expected to cross. I think that's evident when God speaks to him in a vision. When God comes and he sees this sheet lowered from heaven with animals in it and his first response was quite simply by no means I am not going to eat I have not eaten anything common or unclean basically I've kept the rules I've kept the rules I've not done that Lord and I'm not going to start now And so what Luke does is he compares and contrasts these two guys. And I want to show you something from them. Let's look at Cornelius, who's further on in the book. Or further on in the chapter, at least. So, he's an an Italian centurion, an army officer. He is a Gentile, yes, but he is more than that. His officer's status, the fact that he was in Caesarea, meant that he was someone of significance. Because Caesarea was somewhere which was important. Because through Caesarea flowed grain from Egypt in order to go on its way to Rome. And so what they wanted to do was they wanted to ensure that that route remained open and not closed. And they would not, they might have, an army officer, a Roman army officer might have found some out of the way place to hide himself for years if he was no good. But if you were any good, you were sent to the places that were necessary. And so he is sent there. And he has this important function I want you to recognize that he is part of an occupying force. The very same occupying force that was there when Jesus was crucified and the people wanted him to overthrow and liberate them from. And this is Cornelius, the man who Luke is saying, Just look at this guy. How is he described? He's described as a devout man. What does that mean? He was a spiritual man. Devout means someone who was spiritual, someone who was righteous. Even some may say he was holy. He was principled. He was a man who feared God. And I've just taken and lifted this as the description of what it meant. To regard with feelings of respect and reverence, consider consider hallowed or exalted, to be in awe of. This is how he was looking at the God of the Jews. He was a Roman officer, yes, but he was spiritual man who feared God, a man who gave alms. He contributed money or goods to the poor, especially flowing from a disposition of kindness and compassion. He was generous. He gave generously. He was a man of prayer. 
He would come before God and the word that is in, uh, made, he would come before God in prayer continually is that he would come before God begging God, intercession and supplication. And he did it continually. And I can only, this is me reading into the text, I can only conclude that he was praying that he would be able to maintain and keep giving generously to those who required it. He was a man who had vision. He had a vision from God. God turned up and spoke to him. He experienced a supernatural appearance that imparted through an angel a message to him. And he was obedient. Obedient. There are a couple of other things I want you to notice about this guy. In his description in those first verses, it says this about him. It said that he feared God, him and his household. His household and him was devout. They were all devout. It says later when he calls servants and he calls a devout soldier, right? And therefore, this man's life was having an impact in his own household and in where he worked. Which is exactly how our lives should be. The other thing I want you to notice, and I do want you to hear this. If you forget some of the other stuff I say this morning, remember this. Nothing in your life before God goes unnoticed. Nothing. Because he makes the statement, Dr. Luke writes the statement down. He said, you're, you're basically, the way you have lived has come before the Almighty as a memorial to him. Your life is known in the presence of God. So we can't con him. We can't walk in and raise our hands and sing wonderful songs if our life sucks the rest of the week. We can do that, but we don't fool him. We fool ourselves, but we don't fool him. When we're walking with Jesus, our life comes before. In fact, whether we walk before Jesus or not, he sees our life. It is before him. In this man's case, it was a memorial. Now, I am pretty sure, I am pretty sure that if you were described like this man was, you would be quite happy to be known like that. I certainly would. Where when people talked about me, that was what they saw and that is what they reported. He is a man who, at worst is seeking to find God and at best has already found him but has no understanding of what has happened to himself. Then we've got Peter. He was disciplined. He went onto the roof at the time of prayer. The sixth hour, midday. He went. There were three times of prayer in the day. The third what was it? No, I don't know anyway. It's, there's three, three times of prayer. There's the sixth and the ninth hour, I think. And it must be the third hour before that. So nine, twelve, and three. Or thereabouts. If it's wrong, just ignore it. There's three times of prayer. That's all you need to remember. He was a disciplined man. 
just like Cornelius. He was still heavily influenced by Jewish tradition because I've already said to you, he would not take and eat. He, in fact, it says he was perplexed by that. He too had visions. He was fervent. He was fervent in his faith. By no means. He was quite clearly saying, I will not. It wasn't just a passivity of a, I will not. It was, I will not. This is God speaking to him and he's saying, I will not. He was perplexed. And then he gets those words. Don't call common what I have made pure. He was obedient. Peter, spoken to through a vision, spoken to by the Holy Spirit. There are three men at the door. Don't hesitate to go with them. He did what he was asked, despite his perplexity and despite the fact that I expect his whole life was in turmoil at that point. What does this teach us? This is something else I really want you to get hold of. Sometimes God offends the mind to reveal the heart. He offends the mind to reveal the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, initially, you might want to say to me, no, that is not the case. God does not do things like that. He doesn't do things like that. But then go and look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels and he's doing it all the time. He offends the Pharisees. He offends the Sadducees. He offends the teachers of the law. Their heart is revealed through that. He even offends his disciples, for goodness sake. John 6 is a classic example of this. He, you might remember Jesus is speaking and he says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I, I live because, the, uh, because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. John's account, some verses further on, recounts this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that Notice, his disciples, his disciples, not some whimsy follower, his disciples were grumbling about this. And he said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense? And then it says, many of these disciples left him 
And you've got to remember, he is addressing a Jewish audience at this point. Not just anybody, but Jewish people who knew the law. He wasn't asking them to eat pork. He was saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood. That to them would have been totally, totally abhorrent. As it would to many people, not just Jews, but specifically Jews. It's almost like he was in their face. And then Jesus does something that I would never have done. If I had had 12 people who had been with me, I wouldn't have turned to them then and say, are you off as well then? I just wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I'd have been too happy to just keep the 12 at that point. But Jesus, are you going to go as well? I want to talk to you just for a couple of minutes on the sin of partiality. And you might say to me, Dave, that's not applicable to us. But actually, I believe it is. The sin of partiality. Partiality is basically, and this is my prejudice. Prejudice. It's not a word we like in church. It's something we're accused of a lot. That we're prejudiced. We're prejudicial about anything we don't agree with or that we don't have as our, for want of a better world, our world view. We're told that we're prejudiced, we're bigots. There are some things where we will always be accused of being prejudicial and bigots. And we're not necessarily prejudicial. Now, I can tell you we can act in a prejudicial way. Even with the truth, we can still act in a prejudicial way. By the way in which we share truth with people. But the reality is, so much prejudice happens within our own walls. It happens inside the church. This isn't something new. This was around when chains was around. James 2, if you want to read, just read James 2, the first section of James 2. It's all about partiality. Saying to the rich man, come and take the nice seats at the front, while the rest of you who are poor, you stay at the back. It's prejudice. It is the favouring and lifting and elevating of one because they fit in with me at the expense of another. The reality is that we can all act with partiality. Now, I want you to understand something, because I'm going to name a few things. And I want to tell you I am having a go at no one. Some of you will think I am, but I'm not. We can be prejudiced, we can have partiality over the version of the Bible we use. We can have partiality over worship. We can have partiality because some person 
thinks differently to me about some issues. Now, I'm not talking about fundamental issues of doctrine, that Jesus was the Son of God. I'm not talking about things like that. Or the fact that Christ was Emmanuel, God with us. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm not talking about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. If those things are undermined, they are fundamental, non-movable issues in the life of the church. So there are some things which are unmovable, but there are lots of things in Scripture where there is total freedom. But we have a tendency to be collective together and we gather people to ourselves who think like us, think the same things as us, And when someone says something different, even if they are in genuine inquiry, we get upset. Partiality destroys. Partiality is a sin. Why is it a sin? It's because it destroys unity. It destroys the very thing where God can command his blessing, where the brethren dwell together in unity. Cut out a few verses in the Psalm 133. There God commands his blessing life forevermore. Partiality is a sin because ultimately it will destroy unity because it means that people go and become encamped in their camp. It promotes gossip. We say it doesn't, but it does because we have a little chat with these people over here because we know they think like us. So we have a little chat with them about what we know has happened. We usually share it for prayer. That's how Christians gossip really well. I'm only sharing this with you for prayer so you can pray. We need to recognize what is important, what is primary and what is secondary. I watched three videos yesterday on Hillsong. I've got to tell you, the way in which they were portrayed was horrendous absolutely horrendous this if and I'm saying if because you we have to understand we don't know how those films are cut but if the way if it was true the way they portrayed that particular stream of the Christian church they are absolutely totally overwhelmed with partiality the raising up of high-profile people, Justin Bieber and whoever else that they have in as their celebrities sitting in VIP areas in church, people being told off, ushers, because they sit a non-VIP person in a VIP seat by accident. 
And I'm not saying this because I particularly, I don't know whether everything in that, in those three documentary videos was true. But it is something which demonstrated to me very, very, very clearly that partiality is very real. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is truth, unmovable truth. I want to just quote this from Tom Wright. He says, God has no favorites. This does not mean that God runs the world as a democracy or that he simply validates and accepts everyone's opinion about everything or agrees with everyone's chosen lifestyle. It means that there are no ethnic, geographical, cultural or moral barriers any longer in the way of anyone and everyone being offered forgiveness and new life. This is a message far more powerful than the easygoing, laissez-faire tolerance which contemporary Western society so easily embraces. Cornelius didn't want God or Peter to tolerate him. He wanted to be welcomed, forgiven, healed, transformed, and he was. I want to ask us always, if I preach something that you don't agree with, if I use a version of the Bible you don't agree with, Please come and speak with me. And I'm not saying, I'm not preaching this because it just happens to, it, this is something I'm, I've got an overwhelming, you know, problem with, because I don't, right? Or I'm not aware of it if it is, so. <laughs> come and speak to me about it. Talk with me. If I'm wrong, restore me in love. If you see a brother do or a sister do something which you know is not in line with what God would have, then please pray for them. Don't share it for prayer. You pray for them. You go to God on their behalf. You intercede for them. Then check yourself out. Make sure you've got nothing in your own eye which needs and requires to be removed. And then go out of love and try and bring restoration to that brother or sister. Partiality is so easy to fall into. It is so easy. And I just want us to be aware of how easy it is and to guard our hearts against it. We are all on a journey. I can tell you now you will not live without falling into this at some point. I can guarantee it. But be aware of it. Be aware. Be aware. And deal with it as God would have us deal with it. We are asked to live. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, last quote. 
I therefore, Paul is speaking, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, this place should be the place where you can voice your doubts, confess your unbelief, and know that you will still be loved and embraced. Yes? None of us set out to be, have unbelief in our life. None of us set out to have doubts. When Jesus has touched our life, that is not the highest priority of our life. But I want to tell you there are times, and I'm speaking personally here, there are times, I went through a two-year period where I was in a continual wrestle with God. My mind was questioning God on everything. I came out of university, instead of coming out a whole man, I came out a mess. Because it messed with the Christianity I'd gone in with. I listened to things I never considered in my life. And I had to unpick all that. And when I tried to speak to some Christians about it, all I got was tut, tut, tut. You're not, you don't, you don't, you're not thinking that that's the truth, are you? When what I needed was someone to come alongside me, put their arm around me and say, do you know, Dave, I love you. You tell me all your doubts, everything, and we'll talk about it. And I'm going to pray for you. I want us to be a place where it is not seen as terrible because we're reading the Bible, trying to make sense of it, and we might voice something which is different to the standard line. Not because I particularly want to follow a non-standard line, because it's easier to do that. Don't you remember Paul? He made this statement, didn't he? If I was um, preaching circumcision, basically, it would be easy for me. But I'm not. It's not about the right and wrong for me. It's about the journey. How you come to make something your own that you really do get hold of and as I've said to you you've got to understand this does not mean that anybody can hold any theology they like and get up and spout any theology they like that's not what this is about it is about understanding not being partial not taking offense maybe sometimes God offends the mind I will finish with this Martin Luther, was he the guy who nailed his thesis to the door? Justification by faith. When he preached that, I want to tell you, he upset the church big time. They got upset with him to the nth degree. You can look at Wesley's life. When Wesley started, it's, they say that Wesley never wanted to ever not be an Anglican. 
but found himself put out of the church. Pentecostals never set out to have to form a separate denomination. They had to because the church couldn't handle God breaking in in a new way. What I'm saying to us is we need to be prepared for God to break in and he may challenge us. Our thinking, he might offend our mind to reveal our heart. Do we want to go with God or do we want to resist him? But I can be telling you this and I will ensure you of this. Nothing, I believe, will be preached here that will be not of God. Because if something new comes out, we will gather together as leadership and we will examine the tenor of church history. We will talk together. We will come to a place where we take a line on something. And our role is to protect the flock. That's the role of leadership. So it's not just a whimsy, get up, spout what you like. I am trying to say to you, when God moves, very often there's an offence. There is an offence. When God moved in Toronto Vineyard, in Canada, boy, again, that offended. Because some people went wild, did stupid things, bark like dogs, mood like cows and whatever. Everybody wanted to throw the whole lot out because of those people. It's easier to do that. Clump it together and chuck it out. What we need to do is ask ourselves questions when things like that happen and find out the heart of God on the matter. That's what we need to do. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, I am thankful for your grace and your mercy. I am thankful that you allowed me, someone who was brought up in the church but didn't believe, that when I came to a place, you didn't reject me because of some of the questions that I had. You lovingly led me and helped me understand. I want to thank you, Lord, that when I left university and I had a, what I call what's been t- entitled a dark night of the soul, Father God, you did not reject me, but you loved me and you allowed me to walk that time with you till you brought me through it. And Father God, I want to ask that, Lord, you will teach us all how to walk with one another without partiality, walk with each other in love, walk with each other in a way that we can maintain the unity of peace or the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace so that you can command your blessing life forevermore. Help us be understanding Help us be loving.
help us stand with the truth that we know, but not use it as a sledgehammer to break people. Lord, help us to allow your Holy Spirit to do the work in us all. Father, I want to thank you for this passage. I want to thank you, Lord, that through Peter's obedience, despite his wrestle with what he was offended by, Lord, that you set out a new path for the growth of the early church. Lord, may we be people who can flow with you and your Holy Spirit in a way which will release new things in a way that extends your kingdom. Doesn't build our kingdom, but extends yours. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.